Well, now let me just uh, pray as we come to this passage. Heavenly Father, we pray, please, for wisdom and understanding. We pray that this uh, ancient problem that's discussed in these uh, verses might uh, translate into ordinary, everyday obedience in our own lives. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to be looking uh, in this session at uh, chapter 8 and chapter and most of chapter 9. Um, and uh, we'll come on to chapter 9 in a minute. Now, concerning food offered to idols. Let me venture uh, a guess. Uh, in fact, if I were allowed, I'd place a substantial wad on this one. This is not your everyday struggle, is it? Of all the many issues that perplex you day by day as a Christian, the thorny theological question of whether or not to head off to the Idol Temple restaurant for a quick steak sandwich with the boys is not up there among your big ones. Even giving a talk like this a contemporary title doesn't really bring it up to date. The cross and the kebab. Well, (laughs) perhaps in the city, the cross and the croissant. Or over here, salvation and soda bread, or something like that. How do we translate this foodie issue into today's culture? Now, let me say it was not difficult in the ancient world to see how this applied. Turn over to to 1 Thessalonians, just to exemplify this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul... uh, talks about how the gospel took effect in Thessalonica. And he talks about how everybody around is talking about the response of the Thessalonian Christians to the gospel. Verse 9. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Three verbs, turn, serve, wait. Turning to God from idols was just a characteristic feature of conversion in the Greco-Roman world. The thing that marked the Christians out as different, very significantly, was the fact that they no longer did the idol temple stuff. It wasn't difficult to see how 1 Corinthians 8 applied in the ancient world. And one can understand how This was an ongoing issue for them. Now, in chapters 8 to 10, the whole, this this block belongs together, chapters 8 to 10. It's all about the same stuff, really. In chapters 8 to 10, three aspects of food sacrifice to idols are mentioned. Three everyday situations that people might bump into. And interestingly, they're given slightly different answers. Let me just outline the issues, although we won't explore them all in detail. The first issue is the issue of going to the temple and eating there. Uh, There's very good evidence to suggest that in uh, the Greco-Roman world, idol temples had eating places attached to them, possibly the sort of place you could hire for a family celebration or event or just go to eat there yourself. What do you do, Christian, if you're invited to go and eat at the idol temple? Paul is going to conclude in 10.14 that you ought to run away from that, flee from idolatry. That's one issue. Going to the idol temple to eat food. Common practice. What do you do? Run away. 
Then there's the issue, another one, of buying food at the meat market. Almost certainly in Corinth, a good deal of the meat in the meat market would be a byproduct of animal sacrifice at the temple. It would have been through the temple system before it arrived on the table at Sainsbury's or whatever it is. Paul is going to conclude something slightly different in relation to that kind of idol-related stuff. He's going to say in 10.25, you can eat anything that's sold in the meat market because all food belongs to God. That's the second thing. First thing, going to eat at the temple. Second thing, eating potentially temple-sacrificed food that just found its way to the meat market. Third issue, the tricky question of what to do when your non-Christian friend invites you round for dinner. Very likely that the food's going to have come from the temple sacrifice system. In 1027, Paul is going to conclude that you can eat whatever is put in front of you as long as nobody makes an issue of where it's come from. Because then it becomes a different matter and you might have to do something different. So three different little scenarios are mentioned in this chapter, all to do with, in these chapters, all to do with the basic issue of the temple and sacrifices and the meat byproducts that happen as a result of that. It is a multi-layered problem in this culture. Food offered in sacrifice, you're going to bump into it everywhere in Corinth. Your response to it is going to change depending on what the circumstances are you bump into it in and what other people are going to think if they see you doing going to the temple to eat or eating food from the meat market buying food from the meat market or having food over the table when you know it's come from the meat market you know that kind of thing it's 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 everywhere in the culture this it's not a single issue now, how do we make sense of this? Because this is not our issue. It really isn't our issue in the same way. Well, let me read the first three verses because what I want you to notice is that this is not, as everything else in 1 Corinthians, it's not a standalone issue. It's part of Paul's argument to win the Corinthians back to his way of doing things in life and ministry. Let me read the first three verses. And see if there are any words you recognize from what we've already done in 1 Corinthians. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Recognize any of those words from elsewhere in the letter? What words do you recognize? Anyone? Love? Where have we seen love before? Chapter 13. We do see it, yeah. It was mentioned right at the end in chapter 16, wasn't it? If anyone has no love for you know, God, let him be accursed. Love is a letter issue, not merely a food sacrifice to idols issue, okay? What else do we, what, any, any other words you recognize? Anyone? Knowledge, yes. Where did we see knowledge before? Chapter 1, enriched in all speech and in all knowledge. Knowledge is a Corinthian issue, not merely a food sacrifice to idols issue. So the letters, the, the issues that, um, that drive the letter run through this chapter, and you can see them at the beginning. Um, 
Now, uh, let me read uh, the end of chapter 10. Just go on to the end of chapter 10. We bumped into this very briefly at um, uh, at uh, yesterday evening. Here is Paul's conclusion to the food sacrifice to idol section of the letter, 1031. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You see, this summary statement at the end of this particular issue-driven section is all about the whole of life. The things that apply here Uh, Paul is saying, I want you to imitate me in these things just as I'm living the whole of my life for the glory of God, the salvation of others, and all that kind of thing. Imitate me. So you see that this he uses, this particular example, as part of his more general argument that they should imitate the way he lives and does things and the principles he operates by. Now, Let me just step back from it for a moment and say this. When we think of the cross-shaped life, the imitating Jesus life, what first springs to mind? Well, if you're anything like me, I guess the things that first spring to mind are rather spectacular things. We we generally think that only the spectacularly cross-shaped, sacrificial, you know, going to another country in the world and dying for the gospel, that kind of thing. We think that those things are the really important things. And we often think that the really ordinary stuff of life, like what we eat and how we eat and what we drink and how we drink, is just stuff we have to do. And it's not theologically that important. But notice what Paul does at the end of chapter 10. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, all for the glory of God, all for the salvation of the world, do it like me, he says. You may think that your life is so full of the unspectacular things that you just have to do, you can't avoid them, that there's no shit place at all in your life for anything spectacularly cross-shaped that might actually be useful for the gospel. The truth is, as defined by Paul here, the cross-shaped life is worked out mostly in very ordinary things. What you eat and how and with whom. What you drink and how and with whom. The manner in which you do the stuff of every day, like eating, is gospel and really important for the gospel. And people will look at you doing it and learn things about the gospel. Do you believe that? That's the way the gospel life works. Now, can I say, remember in the first evening I said, the big question about this letter for us is, in what sense do we need to be imitators of Paul as he imitates Christ? Do we all need to be cross-cultural missionaries wandering the world with no home? Well, the answer is no. In this sense, that we apply the gospel to eating and drinking and everything in life in the way that Paul does. Do you see that? The small stuff is really important. It's gospel. All life is gospel living, not just the big spectacular looking bits. And one of the good things about this chapter is it's very ordinary and everyday. 
and most of our lives are very ordinary and everyday. So if you feel your life is unspectacular, take courage. It can be a thoroughly gospel life, even though it's very ordinary looking. Okay, now uh, let me uh, start with a preliminary mark on the beginning of chapter 8. If you remember from chapter 7 onwards, we're dealing with issues that they have written to him about. And he starts these sections, all of them, by now concerning the thing. Uh, Let me turn you back to chapter 7 to see the first of those. And recognize the pattern here. Uh, There's a pattern to the way he introduces these issues. Almost always, he mentions the issue, and then he mentions the thing they've written to him about the issue, or the thing they think. And then he mentions his modification of the idea that they've written to him. We get the title, their idea, his modification, And then he expands on that at some length in the bit that follows. Look at how it works in chapter 7. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, and here I think he's quoting them, it's good for a man not to have sex with a woman. That's what they've given to him. They want his comment on that. Then follows his modification. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should go on having his own wife. I think it's talking about sex and marriage there. And each woman her own husband. Do you see? The subject, their idea, his idea, and then he expands on it. Now, the same is there in chapter 8. Now, concerning food sacrificed idols, that's the, the headline. Here's their idea. I think the ESV, does the NIV do it too? I think the ESV is right to put this in inverted commas. It's, it's their idea. All of us possess knowledge. Then we get his idea. Yeah, but that kind of knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Do you see? The subject, their idea on it, his modification of it. And then he expands on that through the chapter. Um, And so the big issue here is the Corinthians and their knowledge. All of us possess knowledge. We are the guys who know. We know things. And all of this chapter, all of this section is around what they know or think they know. And his modification of that. Paul is questioning the Corinthian sense of being the guys in the know spiritually verse 3 is the twist in the tale if anyone loves God he is known by God the big issue Corinthians is not what you think you know but whether you are really known by God people God is the one whose knowing is important not you and the real sign of being known by God the one whose knowledge is important is not what you know Verse 1, but how you love. Real knowledge, real being known by God knowledge is demonstrated not in how clever you think you are, but in whether you love people with what you know. And of course, in the chapters that follow, we'll see that the Corinthians don't really love people. And they don't love people in relation to this issue either. 
So he's raising questions for people who think that they know about whether they, the way they love shows that they're really known by God people or whether they just think they're very clever. How did the Corinthians get the knowledge they have? Well, chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, the key, words in the, the key verses in the letter, they got the knowledge they have through Paul's gospel, enriched in all speech and in all wisdom. But here he raises the question of what they know. Now, at one level, what they know is true. Let me read verses 4 to 6. Therefore, and here he expands on the issue. As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so baby so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is what the Corinthians know. And of course, this is true, is it not? There is one God, the possessor of everything. There is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom everything exists. Everything comes through him and we exist for him. Uh, Monotheism is a tremendously liberating thing for a polytheist. The person who believes that there is really one God in control of everything no longer has to pay attention to multiple conflicting powers and their demands on his or her life. And that, as we'll find out, brings great freedom in relation to food. Just because a piece of meat has been in the idol temple doesn't mean it's no less God's piece of meat than before it went into the idol temple. Um, Look at chapter 10, verse 25. This is precisely the way Paul argues. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in the world belongs to God, even the piece of meat that's been through the idol temple. Every cow belongs to God, no matter how it met its end. That's the point that's being said, that's being stated here. It's a good theological truth, that. But what are the Corinthians doing with that true truth? Well, I think they're doing something like this. If God is one and Jesus is Lord of everything then if I abstain from eating anything that I might eat, that is in some sense a denial of Jesus' lordship over everything. If he's Lord and I belong to him, and everything comes from him and everything belongs to him, what does it say about his lordship if I have scruples about eating certain things? Surely it means that I've in some sense, not entered into the full freedom that is mine in Christ the Lord, who's Lord of every food. Surely if I were really living out my faith in Christ the Lord, I would unswervingly eat anything without thinking. Only that kind of resolute, consistent, living out of freedom properly demonstrates that I belong to such a wonderful Lord. Now, I think that is precisely 
the dynamic that you see happening in chapter 8, 9, 10. Uh, Look at verse 8 of chapter 8. Paul says to the Corinthians, Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat. We're no better off if we do. Now, I think the Corinthians don't believe that. I think the Corinthians do believe that if they don't eat, they are somehow not living up to their privileges. That if they do eat, they're demonstrating that Jesus is Lord of everything. Do you see how they start with correct theological statements? God is Lord. Christ is Lord of everything. But they take those theological ideas which are true in directions they ought not to take. Because as we'll see later on in these chapters, Paul is very picky about what he eats and who he eats it in front of because of what they might learn through what he's doing. He changes his behavior depending on where he is and who he's eating with. And the Corinthians think that's really weak, inconsistent. He's not the proper man he ought to be. They start with a correct theological idea, one God, one Lord, and develop them in an idea, in the direction of, well, if that's true, I must eat everything because that's the only thing that properly demonstrates Jesus' lordship over everything. Paul's response is much more subtle than that. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, it's commonly interpreted that he's talking here about the believer who still thinks highly of the idol. Somebody who's come from an idol culture and thinks that idol food is still more important than it really is. And it's commonly thought that Paul says, look, you'll put off your weak brother who's in that position. Maybe he ought to know better, but you'll put him off, so don't put him off. I think actually it may be, more, uh, it may be different from that. Uh, Paul, all the way through these chapters, sides himself with the weak And I think the point may well be that the person who has scruples about eating in the idol temple is actually much closer to the mark than the person who doesn't. The Corinthian spiritual types think that the guy who has qualms about going to the temple is a weak person, spiritually inferior. But all the time in these chapters, Paul sides with the weak person. Indeed, the Corinthians think that Paul is weak for doing that. In a moment, we'll find that out. But the point that's made here in verse 7, 8, 9, that that kind of freedom is damaging. Verse 9, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge... Eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died. That's very strong language, isn't it? You go and eat in the idol temple, you'll destroy your brother, the one for whom Christ died. 
The language is very strong. Destruction means destruction. Don't let the force of this be weakened by saying, well, if he fell away, he was never a real believer anyway. Paul is saying, if you behave in that careless way towards your brother, don't be in any doubt that you are engaged in destroying what the Lord Jesus has built. You think you're living out the Lordship of Christ fully by doing that? Actually, you are sinning against him. Do you see how the Corinthian spiritual thing, freedom thing, actually goes against what God is doing? And, says Paul, you need to side with me. Look at verse 13. Verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, uh, the issue here is that the Corinthians look at Paul and his flexible relation to food and his willingness to abstain from certain sorts of eating, and they think, what a weak person. And I think that that is anticipated at the beginning of chapter 9. Just ignore, just, you know this, don't you, but always ignore the chapter divisions and always ignore the headings. One bit flows straight on to the next bit. Look at, look, look at verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are, there, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? To, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Why does 8.13 lead on to 9.1? Because they think He's not very impressive. Why does he ask this rhetorical question? Am I not free? Because the Corinthians look at his abstaining from food behavior and they think that this is the action of a man who is not properly free in Christ. Imagine letting your behavior be influenced by the scruples of one whose theology is not that good. How weak that looks to the Corinthians. They think if he were a proper free person in Christ, he'd eat anything just like they do. Am I not an apostle? Why does he ask that question? Because they look at his eating abstaining habits and they think that makes him look like a very poor sort of apostle. Not a big, strong, consistent one. One who changes his behavior all the time to fit the people he's with. They want him to behave the way they think an apostle should. Surely an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who's seen the risen Lord, wouldn't curtail his freedoms in order to fit in with the people we consider to be really weak, the ones who have scruples about going to eat in the idol temple. If he were a man of freedom, if he were a man of authority, if he were a man of integrity, he'd do the same thing everywhere. Have you not heard that kind of argument, brothers and sisters? That the Christian person, if the Christian person is a person of integrity, will always behave the same everywhere with every person? 
That is wrong. It's not true. Christian integrity is not shown in behaving the same everywhere with every person. It is shown in being consistent with the gospel everywhere with every person, which is not the same at all. Because different people read different things into different actions. One person sees you eating and thinks, what wonderful freedom. One person sees you eating and thinks, hang on, he's supposed to be a Christian. Why is he eating meat that's been offered, meat that's being sold in the meat market? Do you see? Do you see? The same action doesn't mean the same thing for different people. And therefore, Christian behavior has to change depending on who's looking. And chapter 9 is all about that. They see Paul abstaining from food. They think inconsistent, weak. Surely he can't be a proper apostle. That is the issue. Surely we can't be the product of one like this. We want to be the product of big, strong, striding, (laughs) um, consistent, powerful, not phased by anyone else's reaction person. And Paul is not that. And they don't like that. The particular thing that bothers them in this chapter is not idle food in general, but the way Paul does idle food. Remember we said the thing that runs through this letter all the way through is the Apostle Paul's pattern of life and ministry. Well, that's, it's just the same issue here. The, thing in this cha- the issue in this chapter is not food sacrifice to idols. It's what Paul does with food sacrifice to idols. That's the thing they don't like. Right. Now, two things happen in the rest of this argument in chapter 9. Are you clear about that, guys? Are you clear so far? Are you you with me in that? The issue is Paul, not food sacrifice to idols. It's what Paul does for it. What Paul does with food sacrifice to idols makes him, in their eyes, look weak and unapostolic. Now, what he does in the rest of chapter 9 is argue that he is a proper apostle and he has all the rights of an apostle, but he chooses, for gospel reasons, to put those rights to one side. Let me just outline that argument quickly. First, he asserts his rights. Verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as did the other apostles? And the brothers of the Lord and Kephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who've no right to refrain from working for a living? Uh, the argument here is that um, <clears throat> uh, he has rights. He's asserting the fact that he has apostolic rights. But then he gives some examples of how he qualifies those rights. Sorry, then he gives some examples of how th- uh, these rights are definitely his. He says, experience says that that's obvious. Who serves at a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Who tends to a flock without getting some of the milk? Experience tells you that people ought to be able to benefit from their ministry in certain ways. And then he says, the law says so too. 8 to 12 is all about that. 
Do I say these things on human authority? Am I just saying it? No. Doesn't the law say the same? It's written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap spiritual material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? The law says that the Christian worker can benefit from his work. And also, verse 13 and 14, the Lord says that too. Don't you know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. He's stacking up a whole series of reasons why he has the rights of an apostle. Notice that we've wandered away from food sacrifice to idols. Do you notice that? He's now talking about things like financial support. And he's also going to talk about the fact that he didn't take financial support from the Corinthians. So even in this section about food sacrifice to idols, the issues are broader. The big issue is Paul's apostolic authority and what they think of him. And actually they think of him lowly in a number of ways not just his food but his unwillingness to take money from them verse 15 why he hasn't used his rights i've not made any use of these rights nor am i writing these things to secure any such provision for i'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting for if i preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting for necessity is laid upon me woe to me if i don't preach the gospel If I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will. I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward that in my preaching I present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? The argument then in the first part of chapter 9 is I've got the rights. I just choose not to exercise them for gospel reasons. Do you see the argument? The Corinthians look at his behavior with food and they say he must be weak. He can't be a proper apostle. He says, I've got the rights. I'm just choosing not to exercise them fully for gospel reasons. Now, uh, two things are worth reflecting on in the latter part of that argument. First, he wants the gospel to seem as well as sound, as free as it really is. It really is a grace thing, not a payment thing. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why Paul won't take money from the Corinthians for his gospel work. But as I mentioned uh, yesterday evening, in Corinth there seems to be another thing going on. The Corinthian culture likes to support its speakers. Pagan Corinthian culture likes a good speaker and likes to support a good speaker. And Paul, when he comes to Corinth, works as a manual laborer making tents to finance his gospel work until his friends arrive. And I think that is part of what he says in chapter 2, resolving to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. It wasn't just that he spoke about Christ and him crucified. He did things that looked humble and lowly. And there's every indication that in the Greco-Roman world, they loved their speakers, their rhetoricians. 
and they rewarded them with financial patronage. And I think that Paul's tent making in Corinth is a deliberately countercultural step. I will not be supported by you in the way that you like to support speakers in your culture. Because this is something different. Verse 15 of chapter 9, I did not make use of those rights when I came to you, and I'm not doing that now. Because if I had, I'd have made you think that I was just another public speaker with just another message. Now the Corinthians, of course, don't like this. They hate it in chapter 4 that he grows weary working with his own hands. They hate it that he won't take their money. Um, Stepping aside a little bit, can I say that Paul believes in full-time gospel ministry and he believes in people earning their keep from doing the gospel work. But interestingly, he... I mean, if ever there was a full-time ministry person that you'd like to fund, it would be the Apostle Paul, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? But he is remarkably unwilling to put down his day job. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because it gives him flexibility and it enables him to say things to some people that they can't learn if they're supporting him. Well worth thinking about that if you're thinking about the paid Christian ministry uh, direction in life. From time to time, for the gospel's sake, it is very helpful for some gospel workers to be able to refuse financial payment for the people that you're working with. Paul's great concern here is to have the gospel perceived rightly. And that involves financial support, in Corinth at least. We get back to the argument in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Though I am free from all, I make myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak key word in this letter I became weak that I might win the weak I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings do you see the evangelistic concern in all of that he's flexible in behavior for the gospel's sake He changes his behavior with Jews and with Gentiles. And verse 22, with the weak, which is the issue in this chapter, the people who worry about eating food sacrificed to idols. So important is the salvation of Jew, Gentile, weak, that I will enslave myself to their different situations in order to win them. Now, let me make some observations on that before we close. Uh, That phrase, all things to all men, in our culture, generally means, what does it mean? Trying to please everyone. 
Yes, looking for common ground. Yes, good. It often means kind of spineless, bending, fitting in with everybody all the time. Now, notice that that is not what Paul is saying here. It's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is very flexible. He bends towards people. So I take it. I take it that, do you think Paul liked doing Gentile? Or found it difficult to do Gentile? What do you reckon? Tricky one, that, isn't it? I could see it going either way. Um, Here is a Pharisee of Pharisees, he calls himself. He's a person brought up from his earliest years not to go near anything Gentile. He's a serious avoidance person. But when he's with Gentiles, he does Gentile. Now, you might wonder to yourself, maybe he's enjoying the freedom of sweet and sour pork at last. Maybe he liked that. Difficult to know. He doesn't say whether he liked it or not, actually, does he? But he's a seriously flexible person. He's come from a seriously tight culture. But he adapts himself to his hearers. When he's with Gentile, well, he'll do sweet and sour pork any day because they're doing it. When he's with Jew, he won't do sweet and sour pork because it'll put them off the message. Do you see? He's very flexible, but but he is also confrontational. So when he comes to Corinth, he knows that the Corinthians like to pay a speaker, but he will not take their money and he endures great upset from them on that matter. Do you see? He picks his areas of conflict. Now that is a very sophisticated thing to do. And often we are not nearly so sophisticated in what we do as Christians. Um, I think we have two tendencies that we go as Christians, both of which are not helpful. Either we react against everything in our culture and just don't go near, go near any of it, or we are what people normally say is all things to all men, and just do any old thing. Paul doesn't do one of those or the other. He adapts himself to his hearers as long as it gains him a hearing and doesn't confuse the gospel message. But he deliberately goes against the culture of his hearers when it's important for them that he does that so that they can understand the gospel. Do you see how complicated that is? It's a very complicated thing to do. Now, often we, we get around that by really not mixing with people who are that different from us. And, of course, that's, that's what most people normally do most of the time. And for most people, that's fine. But not for an itinerant cross-cultural ministry, missionary. He's got to change his behavior. He's got to get out of his comfort zone. But he's got not just to embrace his new culture but to go with it in certain respects that might be uncomfortable, but against it when it needs to be gone against so that they'll understand the gospel. It's a very complicated thing to do that. And Paul does it. He will not speak to the Corinthians the way they like to be spoken to. He will not let them pay him as they'd like to do. He won't flatter them it's not simple conformity this all things to all men it's also seriously confrontational 
And they did not enjoy that. Very interesting, that. So can I encourage you to think flexibly? Often Christians are flexible about the things that matter and inflexible about the things that don't. And we need to be inflexible about the things that matter, namely the gospel and people's understanding of it, and flexible about everything else. And isn't it often the unimportant things that we're so inflexible about? And there are good reasons for that, because your sense of belonging to your culture is made up of countless, small, ordinary, everyday things that in themselves matter nothing at all, but mark you out as quite different from another culture. Most of the things that you really love are things that are gospel-wise inconsequential. The kind of food you eat, the kind of things you do. When you go to another culture, what makes you feel uncomfortable? Well, it's all those hundreds and thousands of inconsequential things that are actually quite different from the place you've come from. And the tendency is to be really inflexible about those because they, they make, it makes you feel very uncomfortable to be flexible about those and flexible about everything else. And that often includes the gospel. And so often this all things to all men means I will be like people and I will change the gospel to fit in. And that's precisely what Paul doesn't do. So all our natural gut instincts tendencies will tend to make us inflexible about the things that are of no consequence at all and flexible about the gospel. And that's something that needs to be resisted and needs to be resisted thoughtfully uh, as Paul does it here. Second, let me make an observation about training people for ministry. I'm all uh, for training people for ministry. That's what I do now. But I wonder if we train people for ministry in a way that robs them of their flexibility when we're encouraging people to think about ministry options in life, uh, often we're encouraging them to think about options which will take away their financial flexibility in life. If you're thinking about ministry long-term, don't just think about the conventional, how can I get a job in a church? Brothers and sisters, our nations will not be re-evangelized through the structures that already exist, but through new things. And one of the things we'll need to do is to think flexibly about ministry and finance. Can I encourage you, if you're thinking about ministry options longer term, to think about becoming as flexible a person as you can be financially? Now, not everybody can do this. Uh, but there are some areas of work in this culture where you can step in and out fairly straightforwardly. In Paul's culture, tent making was fine. You can pick it up. It always needs to be done. You can put it down. Not so straightforward sometimes in our culture, but there are some things you can easily, relatively easily still move in and out of. Teaching's quite good. If you've got teaching qualifications and experience, the tendency, at the moment anyway, it's relatively easy to step in and out. Nursing's quite good. Part-time dentistry, now brothers and sisters, Part-time dentistry is a serious way of funding yourself through gospel ministry. <laughs> Medicine's not so straightforward. 
the tendency is the more professional you get, the more you have to keep doing the continuous professional development in order to stay on track. But some things lend themselves to part-time living. And you know, you know how it is with, if you're trying to do two part-time jobs, you're really trying to do two full-time jobs squeezed into half. You know. It's very complicated, that, but some things lend themselves. I think part-time dentistry is where the money is at the moment, although that may change in the future. I have a good friend who funded his gospel ministry for a number of years. Uh, he was a barrister in London. He said that if he did a work, a work, a month's worth of family law in his summer holidays funded his whole year now that's serious earning potential and most people can't do that but can i encourage you as much as you're able to keep your financial options open in life for as long as you can of course they close down as you go on but it's much easier to gain yourself a marketable skill when you're young than it is to try and regain yourself a marketable skill when you're older enough on that uh, let me talk for a moment about knowledge, because knowledge is a big issue in this chapter and in this letter. Our culture really values knowledge. And for us, knowledge is not merely a, if you know something, you'll be a useful person issue. Knowledge is a status thing in our culture, is it not? If you know you are better than the person who doesn't know. Knowledge is a status marker in our culture. And I think this bears meditating on at some length. It means, for example, that we attribute great value to cleverness. Cleverness being, most obviously, the natural ability to acquire knowledge. We're impressed by people who know stuff, aren't we? I am. Clever people are admired for their cleverness. And it's worth asking whether the degree of value that we as a culture attribute to cleverness and knowledge is valid. Is it a good thing to give value to somebody just because they know stuff? Cleverness, of course, is a useful gift if lovingly employed. But we know many people, don't we, who employ their cleverness unlovingly, in self-aggrandizing ways. But cleverness falls pretty much within the realm of gift. It's an ability you've got or an ability you haven't. Paul says to the Corinthians back in chapter 4, What did you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Two observations, uh, both from Christians, one about life in general, one about evangelical culture. The first, about life in general, from a good friend. He is one of the brightest people I've ever met. He has been on the receiving end of a seriously good education. And he has continued that self-education all the way through life. He is a seriously clever person. He knows loads of stuff he is also very diligent and extremely able here is his assessment looking back from middle age to the education he received he says as i look back on it more and more i think the biggest thing my education taught me was how to what do you think he said 
He says, the main thing my education taught me was how to be a good liar. Now, he's not blaming the education system for his lies. But what he's saying is that appearing more knowledgeable than he really was was a core part of the way his education worked. So great was the status for acquiring knowledge that the education system he went through rewarded him if he appeared to know more than he really knew. And therefore, for him, deception about how much he knew was a rapidly learned and finely tuned skill. Do you recognize that in yourself? So easy, isn't it, to want to look as though we know more than we really do. Uh, you've all been in class, haven't you? When uh, the person in the room has asked the question that everybody's been dying to ask. And the whole room breathes a sigh of relief that the person, somebody's eventually asked that question. Why are we slow to ask the question about the thing that we don't know? Why? Because it makes us look lower in status when we admit that we don't know. It's deeply ingrained. Knowledge as status is deeply ingrained in our culture. To say, I don't know, to a question in public is to some degree shameful. And so we become good at liars and we get good at blagging. Our politicians are great at blagging. Most of the time, to most of the questions asked in TV interviews, the appropriate answer is, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Do our politicians ever say, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen? Of course they don't. They never say that. They can't say that because it makes them look stupid, they think. Actually, it's just a demission of reality. Of course they don't know what's going to happen. Of course they don't know what their policies are going to produce. It's much too complicated to be able to predict what's going to happen as a result of the policy decisions you've made now. Why should you be expected to know the future? But knowledge is a status thing in our culture and saying you don't know is to mark yourself down on the status line. Can I say, if you ask me a question I don't know tomorrow morning, I'll say I don't know. I'll try and say I don't know. I don't know. How many things are there you don't know about the Bible? I can't, I can't think of how many things I don't know about the Bible because I don't know them. There are loads of them. <laughs> uh, the second observation is from somebody I was talking to about this passage. We're discussing whether our cultural overvaluation of knowledge was something that seeped into church. And she said, oh yeah, of course it does. It makes it difficult to contribute in Bible study groups. Why? Because if I say something wrong, everybody will think, what a spiritual num numpty that is. It says something, doesn't it, about where our affections really are when the thing we fear most is giving the wrong answer. Can I say that ignorance is the key to knowledge? <laughs> Not knowing is the key to finding out more. It interests me that often the first reaction to Paul's imitate me command is the suggestion that this implies arrogance. Well, that may be because of the way we value knowledge. We assume that if somebody's telling me to imitate him, he's making a status claim. I am superior to you. Imitate me. Paul's not saying that, is he? 
not saying I'm superior to you, Corinthians, imitate me. He's saying, I'm going the right way, imitate me. <laughs> it's not a status claim, it's a truth claim. Do you see the difference between those? I know the right thing to do here, imitate me. I'm not making a status claim, I'm not more important than you, I'm just right, <laughs> and you're wrong. Well, I hope you'll see that... Um, Food sacrifice to idols is a contemporary issue, therefore. The issues involved in this particular example, what we know, how we value what we know, how flexible we are, they're everyday issues, aren't they? Let's pray together. Listen to Paul's um, final words in 1 Corinthians 9. These are very important, these things. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? Run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. It's a matter of obedience to Christ that Paul lives like this, and it is for us too. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us Uh, not to value too highly the things our culture values. We think of the enormous, enormous status given to knowledge in this culture. We think of how difficult it is to admit that we don't know something. We think of how inflexible we sometimes are about things that are unimportant how flexible we are with things that are really important. Uh, We pray that you'd help us to learn from the Apostle's example here. We pray that you'd help us to imitate him, being deliberate about what we do, being thoughtful about what others will think by what we've done. We pray that you would use every bit of our lives, the big and the small, the occasional and the everyday things uh, to commend the gospel of the Lord Jesus uh, to people around us. Hear us, for we pray it in his name. Amen.